You are now listening to the October 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. This is Alan Heller, and we're walking our talk today. Polly's here too. Hello. Great to have you here in the studio always. And I'd like to read you from a classic, Oswald Chambers, Utmost for His Highest, Building for Eternity. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth now down first and counts the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? That's Luke uh, 19.28. Our Lord refers not to a cost we have to count, but to a cost which he has counted. The cost was those 30 years in Nazareth, those three years of popularity, scandal, and hatred, the deep, unfathomable agony in Gethsemane, and the onslaught at Calvary, the pivot upon which the whole of time and eternity turns. Jesus Christ has counted the cost. Men are not going to laugh at him at least at last and say, this man began to build and has not able to finish. The conditions of discipleship laid down by our Lord in verses 26 and 27 and 33 mean that the men and women he is going to use in his mighty building enterprises are those in whom he has done everything. If any man come to me and hate not he cannot be my disciple. Our Lord implies that the only men and women he will use in the building enterprises are those who love him passionately and personally and devotedly beyond any of the closest ties on earth. The conditions are stern, but they are glorious. All that we build is going to be inspected by God. Is God going to detect in his searching fire that we have built on the foundation of Jesus some enterprise of our own? These are days of tremendous enterprises, days when we are trying to work for God, and therein is the snare. Profoundly speaking, we can never work for God. Jesus takes over for us his enterprises, his building schemes entirely, and no soul has any right to claim where he shall be put. So Wow, that's, that's really great. You know, I think about how I like watching these shows on Home and Garden Television Network, mm-hmm. and there's this one show called Love It or List It, and the, the challenge is uh, for somebody to make their home more livable for them. Maybe they started out in a house that had two bedrooms and their kitchen is really small and now they have 
two children and they're running out of space. And they, so they hire this woman to come in and say, well, I can make your home what you want it to be. How much money do you have for me to spend to redesign and reconfigure your home? And they'll say, well, we're going to give you this much money. And then they have a man who goes out looking for another house and they'll tell him, well, we, we have a budget of this much money. And then this woman is working on remodeling their home, giving them another bathroom, and she runs into an issue and she says, well, we need to give you a new roof or structurally your house won't do this. And they're saying, well, we just want you to spend to do everything we asked you to do, but you can't spend any more money than mm. what we've given you. Right. And then at the end of their time, she says, well, with the money you gave me, I could do this for you and I could do this for you, but I couldn't give you that whatever it was that you wanted because you weren't willing to spend any more money. Right. And sometimes they get upset with her. So well, you're talking about counting the cost? Counting the cost, yeah. If you're not willing to invest everything that you, that it's going to cost you, then the results are going to be less than, mm. than what you expect or what you desire. You have to be willing to give God everything and to make the sacrifices necessary in order to, to live the life that's fully pleasing to him. Good. So we're talking about attitudes of a disciple, teachable, servant, faithful, heart for God. And the next one we have is humble, that they're, uh, you know, James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due season. And of course, somebody has said, everybody likes to think of themselves as a servant until people start treating you like one. (laughs) (laughs) So nobody, everybody's not real humble when uh, they get asked to do something they never wanted to do. That, so, well, that's right, yeah. I remember Josh McDowell saying he was all excited about being a part of Campus Crusade, and then they was working at Arrowhead Springs, which at that time was the headquarters in California, and their his first assignment was to clean out the toilets, and he right. did not have a very good attitude at that time. <laughs> but it was a part of him learning to humble himself and do whatever he was supposed to do so he could do what he wanted to do in the future. And of course, he has spoken to literally hundreds of thousands of students around the country and has a worldwide ministry. And it all started with him humbling himself to do what he was asked to do by the people in authority. And I think that's a pretty big issue. I don't have this down on my notes, but Being under authority, I I think that's a very difficult thing for our culture, especially in America, to understand because we, again, demand our rights. We're so into self and rights that humility and being a gentleman or a lady uh, can be very difficult because we are demanding our rights. So another characteristic would be meek. And uh, we had a pastor, Daryl De Husay at Scottsdale Bible, that used to say, meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. And certainly Jesus demonstrated that he had a lot of power, but it was under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
And I think many times with us, and as we look at disciples or being a disciple, we need to know whether we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And the last one is self-control, which really means Christ control. And so people say you can't measure that. I think you can measure it very easily. (laughs) If you're getting upset most of the time and losing your temper or all that sort of thing, that's not under control. And so we can work on those things and get others to help us. The next one is being a God pleaser rather than a man pleaser or a self pleaser. And of course, that's you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, be diligent. Not, that's not automatic. We have to work at it. And as you talked about in a previous podcast, that as an athlete, I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many bruises on my shins trying to do this thing called a stutz, which is a half turn on the parallel bars where you swing your body up and let go and then you come around on the other side. And uh, the first hundred times, all I could do is get my knees and shins crashing on the bars <laughs> and just going, oh, 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 I'll never get it, I'll never get it. And then finally, you know, one day I did it and I went, oh my goodness, it didn't hurt. So, and back handsprings, learning them, one of the things in a back handspring you have to Learn to be off balance and then be able to push off the ground so you can do your flip and not land on your head. And so um, I think our our co-author in the trust book, uh, Ed Delft, talks about unless the pain exceeds the gain, probably aren't going to change much. So (laughs) the the pain of landing on my head definitely, of course, that does explain some things that (laughs) you've thought about. Right, right. So being diligent and then... A heart for people. Uh, How can you be a disciple and not love people? And of course, 1 John says, how can you love God who you cannot see uh, if you don't love the people around you whom you can see? So loving people, um, Lucy, I think, or Charlie Brown in one of the Peanuts cartoons says, you know, uh, I I love... um, I don't know. He says, I love people, but humanity I can't stand or something. Like that. <laughs> or I love humanity. It's, it's people, people I, I can't, can't stand. stand. Right. So right. the big word for humanity. <laughs> it's just people I can't stand. Jesus was with people practically all the time, constantly interrupted. If you read the Gospels, you see he's got a woman with an issue of blood. He's got a blind person that heals the lame. And uh, the guy who's been 32 or 35 years at the pool of Bethsaida, and he says, what do you want? And the guy says, I want to be healed. But everybody gets in front of me and jumps in the water before me. And this is a story where the waters get troubled or stirred up and people were getting healed. And he's been sitting there and he says, and Jesus says, just get up and get in there. Mm -hmm. And he finally is healed. I think of these stories about Jesus where uh, people would come up to him. The gospel writer will make the comment, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Or he looked at them and felt compassion for them, knowing that what they were asking him to do would require for them to make sacrifices that they 
didn't understand that they were going to have to make. Well, like the rich young ruler. I mean, here Jesus said, sell all you have, and he couldn't do that. Right. Because that was so important to him. Right. But he didn't say that because he didn't love him. Mm. It was exactly the opposite. He looked at him and he loved him, but he challenged him as a a would-be disciple. He challenged him in the part that he knew was going to be the hardest for him. Hmm. And that's that's what being a disciple is. It's it's not doing the things that you already know how to do well. It's not doing the things that come naturally to you. You don't need to be discipled <laughs> in, in being good at the things you're already good at. It's looking at your weaknesses and giving those over to God and letting him have control of those things so that he can show you, so that he can work those out in your life. So another one is availability. Uh, Somebody has coined the phrase, I think, when we were in crusade, fat. Are you looking for fat people, faithful, available, and teachable? Right. So availability, available means that sometimes there'll be interruptions, and that's what God wants you to do. And you need to be willing to see your life interrupted in order to minister to people. So there's a love for people and availability. A transparency. I know in our group that we have on Thursday nights, my goal is to try and when I ask people to be transparent in the group, I try and start off with something that I'm transparent about in my life, a weakness. Or, you know, I remember sometimes saying to our home group, I just am bushed. I couldn't get to the lesson. It was uh, just a bad week for me. Will you pray for me? Or calling somebody in the middle of the week and just saying, I just can't lead this this study this week. Would you mind doing that for me? And the willingness to be vulnerable and transparent with your disciple. I remember Howard Hendricks, who was a big influence on my life, who used to be the head of the Christian Education Department at Dallas Seminary. And he used to say, the people see me, the, the students see me as I am. They don't see all the mistakes I made to get where I am. And so he intentionally would share something about what he did that was just a mistake. And so they, they'd go, oh, prof, you know, we thought you did everything perfectly because, you know, the way you teach and everything that you do is just so. And he would share some of the blowups that he had as a young disciple. We'll talk about actions. So let me just review these. The, the attitudes, teachable, being a servant, being faithful, having a heart for God, being humble, meek, being a God pleaser, not a man pleaser, being diligent, having a heart for people, being available to people, having transparency, transparency uh, to those who you're ministering to. Were you going to say something? You look like you were <laughs> Well, I think part of transparency, it, it is what you were just saying. People see us functioning in the areas of, of our spiritual gifting. And of course, when we are functioning with the power of the Holy Spirit in the areas of our spiritual gifting, they're seeing God really mm. working through us. And they might think, wow, this person has it all together or this person always does everything right. And it's like, no, what you're seeing 
really is Christ at work in me. This is not me. Don't get me mixed up with Christ working through me. Mm -hmm. Because if you think this is me, you're going to be really disappointed in me. (laughs) You just need to see that when I am teaching and my spiritual gift is teaching, what you're seeing is Christ working in me. But if you see me hosting (laughs) something, trying to make flower arrangements or trying to uh, comfort somebody when it's not Christ working in me and I don't have that gift, you're going to see me in all my weaknesses and I'm going to let you down because it's not me. What you need to see is that this is Christ working in me. And I need to be honest with you. I have lots of weaknesses. Mm. So you you need to know that. As a disciple, you need to know that I'm not perfect and I will let you down. So uh, something I haven't done in the past couple of podcasts is just tell you, if you want to email us, uh, Alan, A-L-A-N, at... Walk and Talk, W A L K A N D T A L K dot org, O R G. And if you want to interact with us or ask a question, feel free to do that and we'll try and answer it on a podcast in the future. If you want to get any materials from Walk and Talk, just go to walkandtalk.org. Um, so now we're going to talk about some actions and we're almost to the end of our time, but we have a few minutes here. Actions that show that you are a real disciple. And also, what are the actions or deterrents? What are the things that stop you in your tracks? I remember the gal that led me to the Lord uh, was came from a Mormon background. She was just an unbelievably excited Christian, and she shared Christ with me. She said, you know, you ate my oatmeal cookies. Now you're going to have to go to this Christian fellowship meeting. And I was my freshman year at college. And uh, I just said, okay, if I have to go to your meeting, do I get to go with you? And so she was a pretty girl. I kept talking to her. The manager of the gymnastic team came in the door with a Bible in his hand, girlfriend Bible in her hand. I couldn't believe Mike was one of these people too, just like Ginger, crazy, talking about Jesus and how he could change my life and do this for me and that for me. And uh, But I ended up spending a couple of hours with Mike and coming to know the Lord, and it was a, an unbelievable experience. And one of the things that Mike said to me, and I've said this in a previous podcast, is that people will let you down, but God will never let you down. And here, one of the actions that stopped Ginger was by the end of our uh, senior, by her senior year, she did not have a marriage partner. And so she ended up going back to the guy that she knew from Alaska and ended up marrying that guy who was a Mormon and went back to Mormonism and totally recanted her faith. And those words that Mike had said to me, people will let you down, but God will never let you down, came back to me. And the Lord was asking me, are you going to let Ginger's life get in the way of you being my disciple and following me? And I chose him for uh, the guy who led me to the Lord. He had an affair with his secretary, and he was interested in pleasing man more than pleasing God and his own appetite. And then I had another close person that I shared Christ with right after I came to know the Lord, and he rededicated his life, but he got all involved with business 
and stop going to church because he was too busy with business. So what will stop you from being a disciple? Is it selfishness? Is it that my heart isn't really given over to God? Because God says he only gives good gifts to his children. And so even though it may be painful, even though uh, something may not feel right to you, if it's in God's word and he's bringing it about, you want to be able to follow him uh, and follow what the word says more than what your appetites are. Uh, Actions that show a real disciple, you're a hearer of the word and a doer. You're both. You hear it and do it. And James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer as well. And we're going to talk more about discipleship and what it takes to be a disciple and the context of discipling, the completion of the process, how to become uh, a full-orbed <laughs> disciple. And uh, we're excited about talking about this subject and walking our talk, and we hope you are too. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is My Chains Are Gone. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I would like to talk about uh, the power of Jesus Christ to change a life, the power of Jesus Christ to change your life. And the miracle that we're going to look at is a stunning story that's recorded in all three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of those gospels record this incident. A strange man who hurt others and hurt himself. Bible scholars say that it is an eerie and bizarre incident. And let's see what this is all about. By opening our Bibles, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gezerines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, shrieking out, and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, the demons, begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and many people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Luke's gospel gives us a little more information. In Luke 8, verse 2 and onwards says, When he had come onto the land, Jesus was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tomb. Now, we're not told how it happened, but this man was completely demon-possessed. This madman had terrifying physical strength. It said they, they would bind him with shackles and chains, and he would break them. 
He was like superhuman strength. Well, it was superhuman strength. Notice the negatives. No one could set him free. Not even. No one. You see these negatives there. It's trying to establish the fact that nobody could do anything to help them. No one except two. Jesus. Jesus is about to do something that no one else can do. No one ever. Jesus can come to do nothing what any, that anyone else can do. This man's condition breaks your heart when you think about it. He lost control of his life. He was driven from his house. He was living among the tombs. These uh, tombs were in a cliffside that we know where it is on the road, on the eastern road around the Sea of Galilee. When we go to Sea of Galilee, you understand that the eastern side, like I say, doesn't have a lot of land. It's maybe two miles max. And then the Golan Heights, the cliffs to the Golan Heights go up. Some places it's much, much narrower. And this eastern side, it's a Gentile side. And you come to a certain place where the road is very narrow. There are actually ancient tombs carved into the cliffs. And then there's some tombs below them. The road and then a cliff that falls hundreds of feet down into now the rocks on the shore of the lake. At Jesus' time, the lake was a little bit higher, so they would have fallen right into the lake. So this is the only site that could have happened. And so whenever we are going now, I take people and I stop the bus and I tell people that they can get out and they can go look around that area, but we always stop. So here we are. This man is living in the, among the dead. He was driven from his home. He's living in the tombs. He was despondent, suicidal. No one could bind him. He had no hope. He was out of control. The Greek says in verse 5, he was crying out and bruising himself with stones. The Greek says he was gashing and hacking himself with stones. We would say he was a cutter. He is so much in pain internally with the demonic spirits inside. And I'm not saying that any, everybody who cuts you know, has a demon. I don't mean that at all. But this man did. He had this pain. He had scars all over his body. He's naked. He's filthy. He, for years, his hair is matted. You can smell him before you can see him. You can hear him as he's shrieking. And as you could hear the, the rattle of so many chains that have have been put on him that he is broken. Scarred for life, a hopeless case. By this time, society had given up on him. You don't have to be demon-possessed to relate to this man. Probably the man desperately wanted to be free of these demons, but had no idea how to free himself. His cries are those not just of a frightening man, but of a frightened man. And I believe that Jesus is coming across the lake to rescue this man. I believe Jesus is coming across the lake to rescue you if you're struggling with these kinds of things. He comes across the lake to set him free. We understand because of the state that this guy was in, there's no way that he could have come to Jesus. He's filled with demons. They're not going to walk him to Jesus. They're not going to say, hey, free this man. Jesus is going to him. Jesus does this throughout his ministry. He goes to the people who cannot come to him in order to set them free to heal them or deliver them. You think about the lame man 
that was brought, that Jesus came to and Jesus healed him. The man couldn't walk to Jesus, so Jesus walked to him. The blind man who couldn't see Jesus, so Jesus came to him and Jesus healed him. You think of the lepers, right? They couldn't get close to Jesus. It was against the law. They had to keep their distance. So what does Jesus do? He goes up to the lepers and he heals them. And now Jesus is intent on going to see this man. In fact, in chapter 4, he tells his disciples in verse 35, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Right across from where they were on the western side of the lake, the Jewish side of the lake, directly across is the country of the Gerasenes. Directly across is a demon-possessed man who can do anything to help himself. And Jesus says, let us go over to the other side. It's emphatic in the Greek. It means we must go over. We got to get over there right now to the other side of the lake. And so, as you recall, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing, was it? As they started in chapter 4, talks about this trip to the other side of the lake. They experienced this terrible storm that nearly drowned the disciples. And during that storm, Jesus stood up and he commanded the wind and the waves. And he commanded them saying, peace, be still. And immediately the wind and the the waves stopped and there was peace on that lake. That dark, scary, cold night. I discovered something. This is what's going on here. This is what I believe with all my heart. I don't believe that storm was a natural storm. I believe it was a supernatural storm. I think it was an attack, attempt by Satan to keep Jesus going to the other side of the lake. See, on the other side of the lake is a man who is inhabited, we're going to see, by a whole lot of demons. And Jesus sees that poor man and he says, I'm going to the other side. Satan says, no, you're not. The storm starts, Satan tries to cause resistance to Jesus. Jesus will have nothing with it. You say, are you sure? See, Jesus wasn't speaking to wind and waves. He was speaking to the principality and powers behind the winds and the waves. I discovered something. In uh, Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was speaking to the demon, in Mark chapter 1, when he was casting out the demon, in the synagogue there in Capernaum, look at what he says. The demon says nearly the same thing to Jesus in verse 23, Mark 1, 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, and he says nearly the same thing as we read these other demons says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying what? Be silent. Guess what? That word be silent is the same word that he uses when he speaks to the wind and the wave. The same word that he speaks to the demon here, the first exorcism, he says to the wind and the wave, dressing the demons as well. See, Satan tries to resist. Jesus coming to help somebody. And Jesus says, get out of my way. Nothing's going to stop me. Our Lord is unstoppable when it comes to wanting to heal and deliver somebody. Amen. And when you think about your life, the plan for Jesus Christ for your life is not going to be stopped by any scheme of man, by any hellish plan. Nothing can blow Jesus off course. As going back to Mark chapter 5, as they were getting off that boat, the disciples are still cold. It's still dark. They are shivering from the storm that they had been in and 
they were still probably just trying to get their heads together. What happened? And who is Jesus? And they get off, you know, let's kiss the ground, off the lake. As they've come closer to the shore, they've been hearing these eerie shrieks, these howls. Now, it's already been creepy that night, right? They already believe, there's a common belief that there were spirits under the lake that they would try to destroy you, and they've been dealing with all this kind of stuff, being kind of scared of the lake, especially at night, especially in the storm, and now they're hearing this howling echoing off the cliffs of, and through the hills there along uh, the shore, and it seems to be coming closer and closer, even as they're coming closer to the shore. And then as they get off, They're hearing the shrieks even more, and they see this figure coming, rushing up to them. He looks like a maniac, and they're thinking, oh, no, what's this? It's like a horror movie, right? And as they think he's going to come and tackle the Lord, the guy falls down and kneels before Jesus. And then they hear this horrific voice coming out of this man. When he saw Jesus from afar, verse 6 says, He ran down before him and crying out with a loud voice, the demon spits out this. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demon knows who Jesus is, what he has done, and most likely what he's about to do. The Bible says that the demons are smarter than some people, no offense, But the Bible says the demons believe. Atheists may claim not to believe. Well, the demons are smarter. They believe, but the Bible says they believe and tremble. It's not a saving knowledge, but it is a knowledge. Hey, there is a God, and we know what's going to happen to us someday. We're going to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire, and we're going to face the judgment of God. Jesus' first exorcism happened in a Jewish synagogue on the western side of the lake, and now an exorcism, his first exorcism is going to happen on the eastern side of the lake in the Gentile region. I think that's significant. Jesus can handle any kind of demonic spirit in any place. He's not limited by locale, by religion, by culture, by anything. It was believed that if you knew someone's name, you could have some kind of power over them. This went way back in the Old Testament, many cultures. Even when Moses was asking God, tell me what your name is, God said, I'm not telling you my name. This is what I'll tell you. I am that I am. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know my name. So part of the background here is when Jesus asks, what is your name? The whole kind of background concept to this is, I want to know your name because you are going to let me have power over you. Verse 8, for he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. If this is referring exactly to how many demons are in the man, a Roman legion was 6,826 soldiers. 6,826. My name is Legion, for we are many. Well, the odds are completely in the Lord's favor, aren't they? Bring it on. And they're stopped. Then the demons beg for mercy, verses 10 through 12. And he begged him. The demon begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Okay, I don't know all the demonology. Some people are really into Satan and demons, and they think they got it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not an expert on Satan. I'm not an expert on demons, okay? I, I try to make my expertise more about Jesus, you know? But what we kind of know, 
is this. Demons don't like to be without a physical body, all right? And so they like to possess people or animals. The pit, Revelation, or first of all, Jude talks about some demons that were so awful, so fallen angels that were so awful that God put them in eternal chains and have put them into the abyss. And they're waiting until judgment. The book of Revelation says that during the great tribulation, some demons from the abyss are gonna be let out to torment people upon the earth. And maybe there's some hierarchy of demons where some demons can torture and torment other demons. They're not friendly to each other. It'd be like you taking, having a white collar criminal and putting him into a maximum security prison. It's not gonna be good. So the demons are saying, please don't send us out of the country. And some of them say, well, wait, verse 11, there was a great herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside and they begged him. This word for begging is, is that of an inferior, begging a superior for something. They begged him, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Just a reminder, we're in Gentile country, right? Because there are pigs there. Jews don't have anything to do with pigs. They're unclean. They're not kosher. In fact, you remember how the prodigal son really hit bottom when, and came to his senses when he found himself taking care of pigs and looking to want to eat pig food, right? Pig slop. So, I mean, that's how far down can you get. And so this herd of pigs, there's 2,000 of them. They say, let us go into the pigs. We, we'll take a piggyback ride. You know, just let us go into those pigs. Verse 13, so he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Like I told you, here is the graves, you know, and the, the pigs are up here feeding and the demons enter them and 2,000 pigs stampede and they go over the edge and, and now you have 2,000 dead drowned pigs floating in the water. There's a lesson here. But seriously, there's a lesson here and the lesson is that Jesus has the power to set you free. He has the power to give you anything that you need. He can deliver you. Jesus has said the only way that people can be saved from the power of Satan is that somebody who's stronger comes along. And so what does this tell us? Jesus is stronger. Not only does Jesus have the power to set you free, he has the power to restore your life. And this man is an example of that. Reading on, verses 14 through 15. The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that happened. Everybody knew who this guy was. Why? Because, like I said, that area narrows to the point that you had to travel on that piece of the road. You had to go that way, there's no way around it. And so if you're going from north to south on the east side, knowing to go on the Jewish side, who was a Gentile, you had to pass the tombs, you had to pass the place where that guy is shrieking and terrorizing people. Everybody knew 10 cities on that side of the lake, the Decapolis they're called populated by tens of thousands of people. They all knew who this man was. And so the word goes around, the people came to see what it was that happened, verse 15. 
and they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were what? Afraid. They were frightened. They were amazed. They were astonished. When they came to see what had happened, what did they see? They saw this man, verse 15, first of all, sitting down. Luke's gospel told us that the spirits would drive him around. These demons would drive him into the wilderness. He had no will of his own. He had no rest. Do you understand that? The wicked, the Bible says, have no rest. And so he is being driven all around. Now he comes to Jesus. And look, he's at rest. He's sitting down. See that man? Sit. Jesus transforms our life and Jesus brings peace. And he's clothed. The man had been naked, Luke's gospel says, and now he's clothed. When you're saved, you're clothed with Jesus' righteousness. But there's more. This man is not only clothed, this man's chains are gone. Isn't that amazing? I don't know how many sets of chains, how many manacles he had on his hands, his wrists, and on his ankles, but they're gone They're completely gone. But there is a classic hymn that we all love. It's Amazing Grace, right? We love that hymn. And I can remember singing it for years, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, you know. Amazing song. But then somebody added to that song a new bridge. And I think the bridge made Amazing Grace go over the top because the bridge says, my chains are what? gone. I've been set free. This man's chains are gone. He's sitting. He's in his right mind. He's not living like an animal anymore. This man now, he's thinking clearly in his right mind. And Jesus can do the same thing for you. Jesus can restore your life. You believe that? Jesus can restore your life. And you don't have to be demon-possessed. These are attributes not of people who are just demon-possessed. Anybody can be experiencing this. He can restore your life. God says, I will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts has eaten, the things that have destroyed your life. Jesus says, I'll make up those years to you. So now, what does this man do? Look at verses 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. Well, can you blame him? Where would you want to be? I would want to stay with Jesus, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had what? Mercy on you. In other words, go share your testimony. You have a testimony, Jesus says, now go share it. I mean, it's amazing. Everybody knows who you are anyway, right? You're the crazy guy. And Jesus says, you go and you share your testimony. And so the man, he went away, verse 20 says, began to proclaim in the 10 cities how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This man is to go and share what the Lord has done for him. Now think about this. I had never thought about this until this week. This man, as far as I know, this man is the first missionary that Jesus ever sent out. Gentile, formerly demon-possessed man. That's amazing. That is crazy. Go tell people how great God has had mercy upon you. 
and his scars would be his testimony. They would figure largely in his testimony. How many times is it that we kind of tried to hide our past? We are ashamed of the scars. We cover the scars. This man had cut himself and gashed himself all over his body. And basically Jesus is kind of saying, don't wear long sleeves. Your scars are part of your testimony. It might be your divorce. It might be the abortion you went through. It might be the abuse. It might be you have cut yourself. You are being delivered from cutting. So many scars we can have in our lives. It's part of your testimony. People aren't necessarily looking for people who've never had a scar. In fact, our Lord has scars, amen? One of the scars is in, on his palms, not just the piercing, but it says that he has inscribed this on the palms of our hands. He has your name inscribed, written on, the, on his hand. Part of your testimony is what had happened to you, but now your chains are gone. You've been set free. Not only was this man restored to the community, this man was restored to his family and his friends. Let me talk to family and family members of people who don't cooperate with what you need, know needs to be done in their life. And they've become hopeless cases, you know. That child, that stepchild, that parent that won't stop what they're doing that's hurting themselves so bad. And it hurts you. And you've tried helping them. Maybe you've put them in that program, you know. And they will check themselves in and maybe get clean, but then they go right back. Or they check themselves out and you get your hopes up and then down and finally you've just said you know what it's hopeless i can only imagine how this man felt he had family and apparently he had friends at one time right because jesus says go tell your friends and now he says i not only want to restore you to the community i want to restore you to the people who loved you people who love people who are still messes and hopeless hang in there because you might hear a knock on the door someday and you open it up and there's your hopeless friend and Jesus has delivered her or him, set them free. Don't give up. Now, I see there are two possible reactions to what Jesus can do and here had done. The first was to ask Jesus to give a new life and that's really what that man at some point in all of this allowed Jesus to do. This is what he did, give me a new life. The second response could be that you reject Jesus and you tell him to go away. Tragically, this is what some of the people did that day. Look at verses 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. There are some things I read in the Bible that baffle me. This is one of them. How about you? It is not what I expected to read. When the people saw what had happened to the man and how the demons had, you know, were departed, I was, and the people, I would have said, entreated him to stay. Like the demon possessed. Man, I want to stay with you. Instead, they departed. They asked him to leave. To me, that shocks me. Now, I can understand the big money involved there. I can understand, you know, if you had a herd of 2,000 pigs, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars, all right? So I can understand the big money, the big business wanting to Jesus to leave, but what about the others? Please leave. Jesus, get out of here, please. Go back to where you came from. You say, how could anybody do that? 
See, nobody would do that today. Yes, a lot of people do that today. What do you mean? A lot of people, they heard that man. They knew that man. They heard his testimony. They knew that Jesus had transformed his life, and they still said, go away. People hear the testimony. People know you. People hear the testimony. People know what Jesus has done. And when you offer them the opportunity to know Jesus themselves, they say, please, go away. Maybe you're here, and you have heard the invitation, and you've pleaded, Jesus, not now. Go away. I want to pray for you right now. Let's close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we understand that there are times when we are absolutely at our wits end. We feel out of control. We know there is nothing we can do to help ourselves. And you've come along and you have set us free and our chains are gone. For some of us though, that is an experience that we want to have. And if you're here, you're here today and you've heard this and you've heard so many, many times what Jesus has done to transforms people's lives and you've either said it doesn't apply to me or you've really said, go away. I want to give you an opportunity to change your mind. I also want to say that you may be here and you think your scars are so ugly, you're not sure that God would even want you. I want to say, if there's anyone who understands scars, it's the one who had his back ripped open, taking a beating for you when he was taking the punishment for your sins upon himself. Oh, yes, he'll accept you. Yes, he'll forgive you. Yes, he wants you, okay? I'm gonna pray for you. At the end of our time together, I'm gonna invite you to go and have someone pray for you. At the end of this service, I want you to have the opportunity to ask Jesus to set you free. Lord, I wanna pray for each person here. Some of us may be ashamed of our scars, but we don't realize that oh, those scars are our testimony. They're part of what you're doing in our life. They show that you're a God who can transform and redeem and take hopelessness and turn it into triumph and victory. I thank you that you have defeated death, the power of evil, and that right now there are people here and you have crossed the storm and you have come, and now, Lord, you are right now ready to set them free. They need to express that desire, that willingness to be set free. And so you are here right now drawing those people to yourself. Now, I just want to pause. I want to say to those that God is speaking to, you now at this moment, you just say yes to God. You don't have to say it out loud, but you just say, yes, God, I need your help. And you tell God you're not going to send him away anymore, okay? No more, please leave. Now you're saying to Jesus, please stay. Please deliver me. Please set me free. Lord, you hear that prayer. You hear that cry. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to say perfect words or anything. We believe you came to this world to die for our sins. You came to this world to set us free. And maybe we don't understand every little bit of theology. I know this man didn't. But he knew that Jesus is the one who set me free. He broke my chains, and I want to follow him. That's what he knew. And that's all we need to know right now. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. I first believed my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns unending.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Understanding Israel. Hello everyone, and welcome to our new program series titled Understanding Israel. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. In this program, we will be looking at the seven major Jewish festivals and how each festival points to Jesus, as well as future events to come still pertaining to Jesus. We will also be studying about the importance of Israel in prophecy and also understanding how God isn't finished with the Jewish people yet and how the church ties in with Israel at the end times. The seven major Jewish festivals we will be studying are the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Each of these important feasts are significant in Jewish history. They point to the coming Messiah, but they also point to future events on God's calendar. Prophecy is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is accurate. There are many Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' first coming that were all proven 100% accurate, and we will be looking at some of them, as well as some prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. Finally, we know that Israel and the Jewish people are the apple of God's eye, as stated in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. And even though it appears as if God isn't paying attention to them, He truly is, and we will be looking at how God continues to bless Israel and how we, the Gentile church, fit into God's plan at the end of days. I will be referencing Kim Varner's blog, Looking for the Blessed Hope, throughout this program, where she writes about Israel and the Jewish people. By digging a little deeper in learning more about Israel and the Jewish people, both ancient and modern, it is my prayer for you all that you will have a greater understanding, appreciation, and love for God's chosen people and the beautiful land, Israel. He has given them through his covenant with Abraham. This ends our program for today. I look forward to sharing the first festival, the Feast of Passover, with you next week. God bless you all, and goodbye.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.